Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bob, one of the pastors on staff here at New Life. And good morning to those of you who are watching by video. Some of you might be wondering exactly how long are we going to continue um, our live streaming, and the answer is that we have no plans right now to discontinue that anytime very soon. In fact, we're committed to doing it at least until the end of the calendar year, at which point we will reevaluate what we want to do after that, but just want you to know that that service will be available at least until then. Uh, We do hope that those of you watching from home will be able to rejoin us uh, as soon as you can, Um, but we understand uh, the need to exercise caution as well. I also want to make a quick note about our deacons. We're very grateful for the service of our deacons, T.J. Dudley, Zach Whitman, and Evan Austin. They are our ordained deacons. They work very hard behind the scenes. And I think some of you probably know that we've had assistant deacons as well. Carol Addington and Kyle Aldridge have served in that position. Now, Carol recently has stepped away from that position. Um, Kyle continues as assistant deacon. But recently we've added three new assistant deacons, Jeremy Russell, Jeff Clark, and Mark Shua. So just want you to know that. Uh, We're grateful for their willingness to serve. Uh, These assistant deacons are a little different than ordained deacons. If you want me to explain more about that, we can do that. Uh, But having only three ordained deacons, our deacons have needed help, considerable help, in all of the duties that they're responsible for. So, thankful very much for these assistant deacons. Uh, Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 John, chapter 4. Here at New Life, uh, we have been for the last year and a half or so going through a sermon series that we're calling Route 66. We're looking at all 66 books of the Bible with one sermon per Bible book. Started in Genesis and we're almost done. And uh, this morning we have reached the book of 1 John. Now, this is a, a little different this morning because you might recall that we went through the entire book of 1 John before we started this series, Route 66. So it's been just a couple of years since we have been through this book and since we've covered this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in 1 John chapter 4. So rather than just repeat what was preached just a couple of years ago, um, this sermon is going to be very different than what we normally do here at New Life. But most often what we do is we get a passage of Scripture and we look through it in, in great detail. Um, today, this sermon is going to be much more topical in nature. We're just going to read one verse this morning. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of other Scriptures that are going to come at you here on the screens before us. But we're just going to look at one verse that's going to launch us in the direction of considering something that I think is on all of our minds, something that people are talking about throughout our nation and our world, a pervasive issue in our culture, and that has to do with the racial tensions, racial unrest um, that we find ourselves in the midst of here in our culture. So um, I I just want to say right at the outset of this message and make it very clear that we agree here that racism is a dreadful sin that it should be opposed 
everywhere that it is found, in our hearts personally, and in society where it is found, that there uh, is a shameful history that needs to be acknowledged both in our nation and actually in the church as well, and the Presbyterian church in particular. And so we don't want to deny that or excuse it or rationalize it. So let me be clear that these are things that we believe. And at the same time, there is a certain way that the issue of racism is framed in some circles that is causing a lot of concern for Christians throughout uh, our nation in particular. A certain framework, certain terminology, a certain kind of ideology that is used to address the issue that we're gonna talk about this morning. You know, it would be just like Satan, right? It would be just like Satan to take a really good issue, like fighting racism, and attach to it all sorts of unbiblical, unhealthy, and potentially destructive ideas. So what we're going to be talking about this morning is something, a phrase here I'm going to give to you that maybe you've never heard before. If you're in the academy, maybe you have heard of it, but it's called critical race theory. Okay? If you haven't heard that phrase, don't worry about that too much. I'm guessing you probably have heard words like toxic masculinity, white privilege, identity politics, social justice, intersectionality, white fragility, being woke. These are phrases that are more commonly used, social media and in our culture. All of these phrases kind of flow from what is called, in academic circles anyway, critical race theory. And so I'm going to be referring to that quite a bit in the message here this morning. But here's the basic idea of critical race theory. All of people are divided into, according to this theory, two groups, oppressors and those who are oppressed. Everything is viewed in critical race theory through the lens of power. Who has power and who doesn't? Oppressors have power. Oppressed people don't have power. And critical race theory then seeks to Uh, address the disparities that exist because of that dynamic. So white people, for instance, are part of the dominant majority group, and so therefore are, according to this theory, considered to be oppressors. Non-white people, minorities, they don't have power, and so they are considered to be oppressed. And what's very interesting about the way critical race theory views this is that um, a person who is part of an oppressive group is considered to be racist regardless of anything that that person happens to believe or do or think about racism. What's in that person's heart is not so important as the group to which the person belongs. And some in critical race theory will then also say that if you're part of an oppressed group or a minority group, you can't be racist. It's impossible. So, by way of summary, there's a guy named Neil Shenvey, who has been very helpful to me as I've thought through this and prepared this message, but Shenvey summarizes critical race theory this way. We are all members of social groups locked in a struggle for power. Our primary identity comes from our relationships to other groups. 
Suffering is caused by systems of oppression. Our purpose in life is to fight against the subjugation of dominant groups so that we can eventually achieve a state of equity. Now, I also want to make very clear here at the beginning that I do think that critical race theory does bring to us some helpful insights about the lived experience of minorities in our culture that we should listen to. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention, Convention, actually just last year in 2019, released a statement about critical race theory. Our denomination, the PCA, has not, but the Southern Baptists have. And they acknowledged, according to their assessment, that uh, critical race theory can be used as an analytical tool. But they went on to say that we should denounce its misuse. And there are many places where it is being misused. And that gets us to our passage here this morning. This text, 1 John 4, 1, is issuing to us a warning as God's people in this world. On this issue of race, as I think you all know, there are so many voices speaking into this. So many claims about what is right and wrong, what is good and what is wicked. And the passage I'm about to read here is going to tell you, brothers and sisters, don't believe everything you hear. Test what you hear. That's John's message to us here in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, as I have been doing in every sermon through this series, just very brief overview, 1 John, written by John, the Apostle John, the one who Jesus loved, this letter written later, 85 to 95 A.D., in fact, the rest of the books we're going to look at here in the New Testament will all be written by John except for Jude. Uh, themes in the book of 1 John include obedience, love for one another, the person of Christ, and how to know you're a Christian. But just one verse this morning to get us started, okay? So if you want to stand up, you only have to stand up for a few seconds as I read chapter 4, verse 1. John says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. God, by your spirit, would you please open our eyes to behold the truth of your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So just looking at this verse, just very quickly kind of unpacking this, here's John's point. What, what he's saying is that, uh, not, not that there are you know, ghosts floating around who are making certain truth claims, that's not what he mean, means when he talks about spirits. He makes reference here to false prophets as well. So John is saying that there are people out in the world who are making certain truth claims. And behind every so-called prophet, everybody who comes forth to advance some truth claim about what is right and wrong or who God is or how we should respond and how we should be good, upright, moral people, behind every person who speaks, there is a spirit of some sort. There's a spirit that speaks through people and behind every spirit is either God or the devil. One of those two. And as Christians, we're put in a position where we have to seek to discern what we're hearing. Uh, here's the truth, is that very often what you'll find is that some groups of people are very, very skeptical. You know, they, they don't believe in anything. They don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in the Bible. They're skeptics. They believe nothing. There are also people who are very gullible. And that is, they believe everything. 
They just consider everything to be an equally legitimate truth claim. And what John is telling us here, I think, is to be a little bit more skeptical about things that you hear and not quite so gullible. Test everything that you hear. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 2, something very similar. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Don't be taken captive by everything that you hear. So let's consider this in three categories. The first category that we're going to look at here is this, this, uh, this uh, idea of identity. That is, who are you? How, how do you know who you are? How do you get your sense of identity in this world? And through this critical race theory idea, <clears throat> the very major factor regarding identity is that identity is found primarily in the group to which you belong, the subgroup of the human race to which you belong. You either belong to a majority dominant group or you belong to a subordinate oppressed group. And that's where you find your primary identity. And transgression or sin or immorality then is found not so much in your character, as I mentioned a moment ago, not so much what's going on in your heart or your beliefs or what you've done or what you plan to do. It's determined by the group to which you belong. And so racism in this view is not necessarily an attitude. I mean, most of us, I think, think of racism as, as prejudice, you know, a personal prejudice that we might have against one race or another. Critical race theory would say that racism is not just prejudice, it's actually prejudice plus power. Prejudice, prejudice plus power. So a minority group who has no power can't be racist. But a majority group who has all the power is racist, whether they're prejudiced or not. <laughs> that, that, that's the idea. It's all boiled down to the group to which you belong. And <clears throat> the, the result of this is that this theory ends up pitting one group after another or against another. So there was a headline in the New York Times a while ago um, written by uh, an African-American, Can My Children Be Friends with White People? In The Guardian, a British newspaper, Roads Designed by Men Are Killing Women. So you see the way this... The, the, the whole world is viewed through different groups and how the oppressed are under the authority and abused by oppressors. So you have another term that comes up in this whole idea, and that's called intersectionality. Big word, intersectionality. And all that means is that people are sometimes members of overlapping groups. So, for instance... Um, you can have a white person who is also a man. So now you have two groups. He's white and he's a man. Those two groups overlap. That's a form of intersectionality. And according to critical race theory, a white man who also happens to be a heterosexual man, who also happens to be a Christian man, a white male heterosexual Christian man is now a member of a group where you have several oppressive dominant groups overlapping 
And so a person in that category becomes the most oppressive of all, according to critical race theory. And therefore, they have the most to apologize for as well. They're considered most guilty. So <clears throat> just to summarize, identity in this particular way of looking at the world is not considered in a vertical way, that is, regarding your relationship to your creator. It's considered in a horizontal way, entirely according to your relationship to other groups of people. So test the spirits, right? That's what John says. Test the spirits. So let's do that with what I've explained here. Um, <clears throat> is there anything to agree with here? And I think, well, absolutely yes. I mean, let's just acknowledge it. There has been oppression in human history. Dominant groups have oppressed minority groups. Whites have oppressed blacks. Men have oppressed women. That has happened. It's real. Let's not deny it. Let's express our sorrow over that. Let's confess it. Let's repent of it. God is not pleased by the exercise of oppression of a dominant group over a lesser group. That's true. We can agree with that. But there are ways we can disagree too as we follow John's decree here to not believe every spirit. First of all, let's consider this idea of inherited sin. How is a person made sinful? It's not by being a member of any one particular subgroup. The reason that we're sinful is because we're a member of a much larger group called the human race. That's where we get our sin. We have inherited it from Adam. It has infected all people throughout history and throughout the world, Romans 3.19. Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, all women, all children, because all sinned. We're all guilty before God. And Romans 5.12 tells us something similar. Um, wait, I missed 3.19, yeah. 3.19, I just said 5.12, 3.19. Romans 3.19, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Not just members of minority or oppressed groups. Both of these passages are telling us that all of us have inherited a sin nature from Adam. The fact that you're part of a minority group doesn't make you less sinful. The, the fact that you're part of a majority group doesn't make you more sinful. We all need a savior. We all need to be saved and redeemed from our sin. So sin is inherited by being a member of the human race, not a subgroup. But secondly, the scriptures also tell us very clearly that God shows no partiality. Romans 2.11, God shows no partiality. <laughs> very clear. That is, God does not favor certain groups of people over others. God doesn't favor white people over black, and he doesn't favor black people over white. God doesn't favor men over women, and he doesn't favor women over men. He shows no partiality to ethnic groups and gender distinctions. If there's any group that God is for, if there's any group to whom he shows partiality, it's those who have bowed the knee to Jesus, those who live for Christ, those who are part of his church, those who belong to him through faith, those are the people that God favors. The world is not divided between oppressors and oppressed. 
The world is divided between those who are in Adam and those who are in Jesus. Those are the two major groups, the scriptures would tell us. God shows no partiality. Lastly, where do we find our primary identity? The answer to that for every person in the world is we find our identity in the fact that human beings are made in the image of God. All of us bear his image. That's what gives to every person his or her dignity and value, and that is the foundation on which we oppose racism everywhere we find it, because every person from every subgroup or ethnicity or minority group bears God's image. But to bring that down even further, for Christians, what Galatians 3 tells us is this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Within the church, we do not separate ourselves by oppressed and oppressors. God does not see us as being male, female, black, white, majority, minority, oppressed or oppressive. We're all one in Christ. We have unity in Jesus, and that is our primary identity marker as Christians. There is no other identity which should eclipse our union with Jesus by faith. I'm going to quote Neil Shenby again here. He says, um, if critical race theory takes root in the church, we will have to approach each other, not strictly as brothers and sisters in Christ, but as oppressed Christians and oppressor Christians. This seismic, schismatic, and ultimately ultimately heretical shift in our view of fellow believers will have catastrophic consequences for Christian unity. So, critical race theory has certain things to tell us about identity that we need to test by the scriptures. Let's go on to the second thing, truth. How do you know? How can you know what you know? How can you have access to truth and know that you possess the truth, okay? So here's the kind of critical race theory view. It goes like this, that if you're part of an oppressor group, if you're part of the dominant majority group, you are distorted in your perception of reality by your privilege. And because of that privilege, your access to truth is limited. There are just certain things you cannot understand. For minorities who would exist as part of oppressed groups, the way it is said is that they are able to read reality better because of their lived experience. So, for example, sometimes you'll hear people say that a man can't speak to the issue of abortion because a man can never inhabit the lived experience of a woman who has had or is contemplating an abortion. Therefore, the man cannot understand it to such an extent that he can't even speak into it and he has no access to truth about that particular issue. So gaining truth, having access to truth, according to critical race theory, it's, it's not really about rational dialogue. It's not about having a, a discussion. It's not about using your reason. It's certainly not about looking to the scriptures to see what they would say. Rationality, dialogue, reason, debate, those things are too Western and too masculine. And so they are 
they are set aside as not a proper way to access truth. So in this view, truth is constructed out of personal experience, particularly leading to the belief that the thoughts and opinions then of people in oppressed groups always have more value than the thoughts or opinions of those who are members of oppressor groups. That, that's the view. So truth is accessed, again, by the group to which you belong. So the natural implication of this is that there is no single truth. There's no overarching account of reality like the scriptures would, would tell us. Truth instead is locally accessed by the group to which you belong. There was a couple years ago um, at Claremont McKenna College in California, a woman named Heather McDonald was being invited to speak, and um, there was a lot of protests and outrage uh, about that, and the students did everything they could to keep her from speaking, and they wrote a letter uh, which kind of reveals their position on this issue, and here's in part what they said. The idea that there is a single truth is a construct of the Euro-West, of Western civilization, Europe. The idea that the truth is an entity for which we must search, that the truth is out there and can be accessed and uh, ascertained by those who seek for it in matters that endanger our abilities to exist in open spaces is an attempt to silence oppressed peoples. So, so this is a common view. The, the idea that there is an overarching truth to which everyone is accountable is in itself an oppressive idea. And some would say this would even lead to the conclusion that God himself is the ultimate oppressor because he's the one who claims to be right about everything and demands submission from all of his creatures. All right, let's test the spirits. Test the spirits. What do we take from this and what do we not? Well, where can we agree? Well, let's acknowledge we all have blind spots. Isn't that true? We all have blind spots. Men have blind spots. Wives, I'm sure, will agree with me that their husbands have blind spots. White people, we have blind spots in the way we relate to minority people. There are certain things that we don't get and we don't understand about their lived experience. That's absolutely true. And we need to be willing, we need to humble ourselves and be willing to listen to those minorities around us, to hear about their lived experience and to seek to enter into that and to understand it. I mean, I've said before, in particular, I think the U.S. church, the United States church, has a lot to learn from the Chinese church because the Chinese church is enduring persecution and harassment unlike anything that we've ever seen here. And they've been learning and growing and maturing through that. And we as an American church should be humble enough to listen and to learn from them rather than going over there and giving them all the answers. They have things <coughs> to teach us. So we can agree with this. Truth can get eclipsed depending on the vantage point that we are speaking from. But here's where I would disagree with this. What is ultimately the cause of blind spots? in our lives. What ultimately affects our view of things, it's actually not privilege, ultimately. It's not the group to which we belong. It's sin. 
It's the hardness of our hearts. That's what keeps us from beholding reality the way God would want us to see. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 4 about Gentiles who are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. We all have a problem with this. We all struggle to understand things properly. What this means is that, yeah, men get it wrong. But you know what? Women get it wrong too because of the hardness of your hearts, just like the hardness of our hearts. White people get it wrong, that's true. Minority groups get it wrong too because of the hardness of both of our hearts. The cause of blind spots is not privilege or being part of some subgroup. It's the sin that we've inherited from Adam. So what is the standard of truth that we should look to? Well, it's certainly not our lived experience. That's not where we look to know what God thinks, how we should believe, what we should do. It's what God has revealed to us on the pages of Scripture. That's how we make determinations about what is right and wrong. God has spoken. He has revealed himself. We have Bibles and we read them and that is the ultimate standard by which all things should be judged. We look to the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We look to the help of the ancient historic creeds. We apply the scriptures in a community of faith together and we listen to our brothers and sisters. The ultimate standard is scripture. What a second Timothy teaches all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is enough. Our lived experience cannot be the ultimate standard by which we judge the truth. I thought of the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Do you, do you remember that? Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. Now, now think about this. Jesus was a male in a very patriarchal society. The Samaritan woman would have been certainly considered part of an oppressed group. Jesus, as a man, would have been considered an oppressive. Here's what, oppressor. Here's what Jesus says um, to um, the woman, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. So Jesus is saying, you're a woman and you have a certain lived experience, but quite frankly, woman, you're worshiping a false god. As a Samaritan, you don't know what you're doing. What Jesus says is, I, I am the one I am the promised Messiah. I, I who speak to you am he, he says to the woman as she wonders about the coming of the Messiah. Jesus ends up being the final standard of truth. Remember that conversation between Jesus and Pilate? Do you remember that? And Pilate and this, what I imagine to be a very cynical kind of sneer, Pilate says, what is truth? And what Jesus had just said to him is this, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. We, we want to listen to our minority brothers and sisters, absolutely, but when we're looking for the final authoritative standard of truth, the one we listen to 
is Jesus. And his words, mediated through the apostles, written for us on the pages of Scripture. One last thing. Gospel. What can save you? We've considered identity. Who are you? We've considered truth. How do you know what you know? And now gospel. What is it that can save you? Something very interesting is that a question has been asked by some, and it's this. Is critical race theory a religion? And some people say that it is. That it actually bears certain similarities to religion. Others would say, no, it's just an ideology, it's just a, a worldview. But it seems like it parallels Christianity in many significant ways. And it does purport to offer a diagnosis of the human problem and a way to solve it. So it's a pretty big claim. But there are very interesting similarities between the Christian gospel and the critical race theory gospel. I I say critical race theory is almost kind of an alternative gospel in some ways. For instance, how do we think about sin? Well, we've already talked about this. For Christians, sin is inherited from Adam, gets in our soul and our heart, expresses itself through the way we act and behave and think and believe for critical race theory. There is an idea of inherited sin, but not from Adam. It's from the oppressed group to which you belong. Confession. As Christians, what do we do? We confess our sin. We acknowledge our rebellion against God as our authority in critical race theory. You acknowledge your privilege if you're part of the dominant group. You you confess that. You own up to it. You acknowledge it. How about with conversion? Well, in Christianity, conversion is being born again by the Spirit. It's having your eyes opened. It's uh, being, you were blind and now you see. You're a new creature in Christ. That's what it is to be converted in Christianity. Critical race theory says it's, it's when you're woke. When you're woke, you have new eyes. You see things differently. It's like a kind of conversion. And there are evangelists out there trying to get you to believe so that you too would be woke. Um, law. Well, in Christianity, of course, we've got the scriptures. The Bible gives us law, God's authoritative revealed will about how he wants us to live. In critical race theory, it can be kind of a form of political, political correctness. You know, certain things you've got to say, certain ways you have to frame it. And if you don't do it just the way they want you to do it, you've sinned, you've disobeyed the law. And salvation for Christians ultimately found in going to be with Jesus and eventually in Jesus returning to the earth and renewing the earth for the new heavens and the new earth as we live in our resurrected bodies, our final eternal state. That's the Christian view of salvation. Ultimately, for critical race theory, salvation is found in liberation. What they're seeking is liberation that is achieved by the actions of social justice. So people put forth the effort to join in the crusade of social justice, to eliminate oppression, to fight injustice, to work for equality. And it's all by effort. It's all by what we do. It's all about the energy that we put forth and the passion we bring to this cause of achieving social justice. That's kind of salvation in the critical race theory alternative gospel. So... 
Test the spirits. Test the spirits. Where do we agree? Where do we agree with this? Let's just say, yes, oppression is a sin. Of course it is. Yes, it's a sin. Israel, God's people, were oppressed by Egypt for for many, many years and longed for liberation from that slavery. Jesus came in Luke chapter 4, and he said he came to liberate the those who are oppressed. That, that's true. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, the prophet says, everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. The scriptures speak clearly against the sin of oppression and we should be willing to do the same. But friends, salvation, the kingdom of God does not arrive by human achievement. It doesn't arrive by our work. It is not something that we achieve through activism. We can't do it, friends. It's too big. It's beyond our ability. In the gospel, at the Christian gospel, sin becomes a problem that is much bigger than just oppression or just racism. In the Christian gospel, racism is a sin, yes. Oppression is a sin, yes, but so is pride and lust and envy and jealousy and idolatry and unbelief and gluttony and deceit and strife and divisions. All of these things, the scriptures tell us, make us liable to the judgment of God. The critical race theory gospel reduces sin to just a couple of things. The Bible says it's more comprehensive than that. It's a bigger problem than you realize. But in addition to that, salvation in the Christian gospel is something so much sweeter. It's so, it's so much better. It's so much more wonderful. Here's the one thing that is missing, or one of the things that is missing in the critical race theory gospel is atonement. There's no mercy in it. There's no grace in it. It calls you to work and work and work and work, and you never know if you've done enough. But the Christian gospel says, no, salvation is already done. It's already been finished. Jesus paid the price on the cross. He hung there and he said, it is finished, and he offers salvation to you now for free, received by faith alone. Let's fight injustice, amen, friends. Let's oppose oppression. Let's seek racial reconciliation. Let's do it. But as a reminder, friends, those things will not save you. No matter how much effort you put forth in that effort, and no matter how good that might be, it will not save you. Only Jesus will save you. That's your only option. Philippians 3 says it very clear. For for this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. As Paul is reflecting on all of his obedience and all of his righteousness as a Jew, he says, I'm losing it all. And I'm counting it all as a pile of rubbish. All of my righteousness and good efforts and everything that I've done to be a good and right person and to be on the right side of history and to do everything so morally upright. All that stuff, I put it aside in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness that I've come up with on my own through my own work and my own achievement, 
one that comes from obedience to the law. No, a righteousness which comes from faith in Christ, a righteousness that he has achieved for us and received through faith. That's the Christian gospel, and it's much better than the critical race theory gospel. Gerald McDermott sums it up like this. Racism is sin, but Christians must not allow their hatred for racism to so cloud their vision that they put their faith in a philosophy that has become a new religion for its devotees, a religion that in significant ways conflicts with historic Christian faith. So, friends, let's... Let's test the spirits. Let's think clearly. Let's take from critical race theory the insights that it gives us about the experience of minorities in our country. Let's listen. Let's learn. Let's take what's good. But friends, when it comes to how we establish our identity in this world, when it comes to the question of how we access truth, when it comes to the question of gospel and how you're saved, remember 1 John 4, 1. Don't believe every spirit. Don't believe every spirit. Believe what the scriptures tell us about Jesus and his work for us. I'm going to close here by summarizing from D.A. Carson, um, not an exact quote, but paraphrase, but he said something like this. He said, you know, if God perceived that our greatest need was financial, he would have sent us an economist. And if God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. And if God had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian. But God perceived that our greatest need was forgiveness for our sins because of our rebellion against God and the penalty of death that certainly comes with that. That's what God perceived our need to be. And so he sent a Savior, and his name is Jesus, and he is enough for us. Father, thank you so much, God, for your word, for your gospel, for your grace, for your love for us. Thank you. Help us, Lord, as we seek to think clearly about the voices we hear in the world. Help us, Father, to remain faithful to you until you come again for your people. In Jesus' name, amen.